It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. For many, this is a story that starts with a spat on Twitter. On one of those quiet days between Christmas and New Year, Andrew Tate, an online influencer, tweeted the climate activist Greta Thunberg a picture of himself pouring petrol into a flashy, bronze-coloured sports car. It came with a provocative message about the size of his emissions. Her response sent the internet into meltdown. And she basically said to him, um, I would love to know more. Please, please email me the information. She took aim at his manhood, but the email address <sighs> she gave him, which was smallbleepenergy at getalife.com. Some people suggested it was the Twitter spat that led to what came next, although the authorities deny it. But two days later, Andrew Tate's very public unravelling continued. The controversial social media influencer Andrew Tate has been detained in Romania as part of an investigation into human trafficking, rape and forming an organised crime group. For many people around the world, this was their first introduction to Andrew Tate. But online, he'd already built a huge influence operation with millions of followers who support his own particular brand of toxic masculinity, which involves fights, fast cars, and violent misogyny. To get a sense of just how toxic some of these videos can be, we're going to play you a tiny clip. But feel free to skip the next 10 seconds if you'd rather not hear it. Slap, slap, grab, choke, shut up, bitch, sex. These are the basic moves of pimping. So who is Andrew Tate? And how has he managed to influence so many young men? We speak to one Times columnist who's met him. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to navigate conversations. He's like your sort of nightmare internet debater who never stops. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Andrew Tate's malign online influence. I'm Megan Agnew and I'm a news features writer at the Sunday Times and I have been covering Andrew Tate since his arrest. For most people, he would have just sort of burst into 
the public consciousness when he was arrested over Christmas. But when did you first become aware of him? I think it was the summertime when he really went viral on TikTok and on Instagram. This was before his accounts were suspended. And so he was sort of around as being this shock jockey. And then I was having a conversation for a different story with a woman who works in schools and she runs sex education classes for teenagers. We'd had our conversation, I was interviewing her about something else and at the end, as I usually do, I said, you know, is there anything that's coming across your desk at the moment that you're particularly concerned about? And she said, we are seriously worried about Andrew Tate. It's all the children talk about. It's changed the conversations that we're having in the classroom. I feel like we've gone backwards. Everything that we as an organisation have felt like we've achieved over the last years, generally since Me Too, visibility and receptiveness and opinions of the kids, feels like it's gone out the window and now all they can do is bring up videos of this man, Andrew Tate, in the classroom. female without instruction is headed for destruction. Women are intrinsically lazy. Yep. Intrinsically. If you show a man how to make $1,000 in an hour, he'll think, I can make $24,000 a day. If you show a woman how to make $1,000 in an hour, she'll think, I only have to work three hours a week. Just take us back a step. Who is Andrew Tate? What do we know about him? Well, a lot of what we know comes from his account. Right now, we're trying to figure out who he actually is. He was born in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. His parents met in the U.K. His mum was a dinner lady from Luton. And his dad was in the U.S. Air Force on a base in the U.K. And his Mm. father was also a chess champion. Andrew Tate said he was the first black grandmaster at chess. So they moved to the US, they had Andrew in Washington, they moved to Chicago, and they had two more children, one Tristan, who was Andrew's business partner, and then a younger sister who is estranged from them. They don't talk to her anymore. They said that she's a feminist. They moved back to the UK when Andrew is 11 to Luton. Our mother and father got divorced. Dad stayed in America to play chess. We moved to Luton, England, lived in a council house, government no, house. Homeless shelter first for two years. Then we moved into a homeless, uh, into a council house. Mother was on the dole. She ended up getting a job as a dinner lady one time. That was it. And by all accounts, they had a pretty poor upbringing there. He said they used to go to KFC to save other people's chicken, take it home and put it in the freezer. Then at about 16 years old, he started kickboxing and he started out training on the road in a cul-de-sac by home base in Luton. From what I heard from people that I met in Luton who knew him, he was obsessed with success, obsessed with winning. And he used to get beaten to a pulp and then turn up the next day for it to happen again. They said that they'd never seen anything like it. You've been to Luton. You've spoken to people who knew him when he was growing up. I mean, just give us a sense of what you were hearing. He was a quiet man. 
His brother, Tristan, was the ladies' man. Andrew, by all accounts, kept to himself, didn't have many friends, didn't drink, he didn't really date, he kickboxed and he tried to start various companies. What sort of companies? So between him and Tristan, they have had 10 different companies since about 2009. The first few were in TV production. They were placing adverts with TV channels. And then we think in around 2015, he went into camming, which means he employed women to appear on webcams in front of men and took a cut of their profits. And it's these women who have since come forward, two of them anonymously have come forward to say that they reported rape and sexual assault to Hertfordshire police by Andrew. Tate has denied the women's claims and the police closed the case in 2019. So there are questions in that part of their business around the legitimacy of it all. And that's what they continued to do until recently in Romania. And just talk us through, so he goes from being a fairly quiet, not particularly flashy kickboxer in Luton to Big Brother. How does that happen? Well, he and Tristan seem to have really wanted to be on telly. Tristan did Shipwrecked, which was a reality TV show in in the noughties. 23-year-old kickboxer Tristan became the island's first elected leader. But you may not enjoy all the hard work that's coming under Tristan's rule. Andrew did a boxing reality TV show. I've got a world title fight coming up. Um, I'm already four-time world champion. I'm out here training in Thailand. Then he did something about Backpacking, which was another niche reality TV show. 21-year-old Anglo-American Andrew Tate is a straight-talking entrepreneur with his own advertising company in Luton. Then he did Big Brother. Andrew is talking about chess. Have you ever won anything playing it? Yeah, I was state chess champion age five. In the under-12s, I won it at five. Youngest ever to win it. Won it three years in a row. These two guys wanted... Fame, perhaps? They wanted wealth, maybe? You know, this was not a random chance success that they've had. I think it's much more considered than that. So he goes on Big Brother, where he's relatively obnoxious, but there are none of these really extreme opinions about women that we're hearing now and that has made him famous since. And he gets expelled from the house. This is Big Brother. Due to events in the outside world, Andrew has had to leave the Big Brother house. And then after that is really when he starts to chum up to the quite dangerous, often far-right voices that are proliferating on the internet. He was on InfoWars. Tate, it's great to have you back with us. What do you want to tackle first? Hello, sir. Good to good to see you again, always. For me, the most pertinent issue, and I know it's been widely discussed, but it absolutely has to be this scam safety 
coronavirus. He was photographed with Nigel Farage and he defended Tommy Robinson. He positions himself in this extremist, often misogynistic corner of the internet that is proving for lots of people very financially successful. And how does he go from hanging out with some of the people who are espousing these ideas, who are already big on the internet, how does he go from that to being big on the internet himself? So he started what is called the Hustlers University, which is his training course for people, mainly men, to learn how to be a millionaire. You're in Hustlers University and you're going to make money, but it ain't easy. It ain't going to be given to you on a plate. You're going to have to work. You're in competition with the entire world. So he teaches them, supposedly, how to trade cryptocurrency, how to drop ship, which is a sort of online money-making scheme. It's this, like, specific internet at home, get rich quick, screw the man, be your own boss kind of internet narrative that he pursues. And has he made quite a lot of money himself doing all of this? Supposedly. I mean, I've looked through all of his accounts in the UK and one of his companies, which was renting cars, which he was involved in for a bit, made a bit of money. His TV ad agencies made a small bit of money in 2010. Other than that, every company that he's opened has been struck off the register by company's house and dissolved before it filed a single account. Wow. He lives like a millionaire, says that he's a millionaire, but the above-board proof of that is spare. (laughs) And when does this start to happen? When does he start to emerge as, as a big personality on the internet? It was in about late 2021 that he started to really gather pace. And and then I think it was the summer of 22 that he really went viral and mainstream and became as famous, I suppose, as he is now. And part of this Hustlers University scheme was that its members were financially incentivized to share his message and share his content even further. So ah. that was then accused of being a bit of a, a pyramid scheme and has since shut down. Andrew Tate had built up an enormous following on social media. He had around four and a half million followers on Instagram more than 700,000 on YouTube, and his videos on TikTok were getting millions of views. And then, in August last year, he was suddenly barred from Facebook, YouTube and TikTok over concerns about his influence. He'd already been barred from Twitter, but in December, Elon Musk welcomed him back. Within a month, he's already built up 4.5 million followers, and he's kept his Twitter account even though within weeks he was making headlines again. Police in Romania raiding the home of controversial online influencer Andrew Tate. He 
his brother and two women are being held for an allegation of rape and an allegation of human trafficking. And they're being held for 30 days by the Romanian authorities. There is yet to be a charge brought against them. Tristan and Andrew's lawyer said that there were no grounds for the criminal case and they said that they were going to appeal the arrests and the potential charges. On Tuesday, Tate and his co-defendants appeared before a judge in Bucharest. A court has ruled that social media influencer Andrew Tate should remain in custody in Romania. The judge decided he and his brother could evade investigation if they're released. And how does he end up in Romania? He said that when you're rich in Romania, you can get away with things. He said that the UK is going to pot, the crime rates through the roof, we react too strongly to cases of sexual assault. So I think he went there by all accounts for some disturbing type of freedom. I mean, that's horrifying. This is a, a genuinely dark underbelly to, to all of his TikTok material. It seems strange that he's so famous in the mainstream, but he really is the meeting point of lots of different very popular cultures and corners of the internet. So he's the end result of porn culture, really, in my opinion. He acts like a porn star. He tells men to treat women as if they're porn stars. He boasts about this extreme wealth that he made via cryptocurrencies from his home. And it's very individualistic. And he also parrots these misogynistic beliefs. And he looks like an influencer. He's big and muscular and flies on private jets and smokes cigars and drinks champagne and is surrounded by pretty women. And the meeting of all of those popular, likeable, like as in Instagram likeable, viral opinions and images and personality traits has made him into this like Frankenstein's monster of online culture. And that's why he's dangerous and that's why he's popular. Coming up, how does Andrew Tate react when he's challenged in person? We'll hear from someone who's been to Romania and spoken to him. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Charlotte Ivers, political correspondent for Times Radio and a columnist for The Sunday Times. Every day, I'm in Westminster, working out what our politicians are doing, why they're doing it, and what that means for you and me. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We know how Andrew Tate likes to present himself online, but what is he like in person? And how does he respond when people challenge his ideas? Well, my colleague, Hugo Rifkind, the Times radio presenter and columnist, found out last summer when he went to Romania to meet him. I can't pretend that I knew that much about him. I guess I was dimly aware that there was this figure out there, but I hadn't really paid a huge amount of attention. And we had a long chat about whether it was right to interview him with the team on the magazine. But I'm still not totally sure whether it was right or ethical to interview him. But I sort of thought that this was an interview that I wanted to read. And so if I was any sort of journalist at all, I probably ought to write it as well. And when you went to Romania to meet him, I mean, just describe where he's based. What was it like getting there? He has this sort of compound, I guess is the best word, in a suburb of Bucharest. It's nowhere special. It's a fairly run-of-the-mill suburb. The housing is relatively shabby. The road outside is pitted and unpaved. It's maybe, I suppose, 40 minutes by Uber from central Bucharest. And his place, it's a, it's a converted warehouse, really. I'm not honestly certain if he lives there or if he just pretends to live there for video and Instagram and stuff. From the outside, it sort of looks like a factory or similar. It's got very these very solid gates. There were armed guards in a gatehouse. Inside the compound, there's a little bit of lawn. It looks fake. It might be fake. I'm not sure. handful of supercars standing around, Rolls Royces and stuff. The house is sort of Dubai expensive, if you know what I mean. It's sort of got these grey marble walls and there are fight belts sort of in frames on the walls and there were a lot of guns and swords and stuff lying around all over the place and there were a lot of screens as well on the wall hooked up to cameras all over the place. I mean it sounds like quite an alarming place to walk into. I mean it's sort of baffling. The guns looked sort of largely ornamental if that makes any sense. They didn't seem to be in regular use. I don't know but we, yeah, we ended up in his um his cigar room, which was a sort of little room off the main living room where there were more screens there and a big sort of see-through safe the size of a fridge full of watches and gold bars and stuff. And so you're led in. At what point do you meet Mm. Andrew Tate himself? Tate is in the cigar room already. He was very quick to offer me a cigar, but I don't smoke cigars. He smoked cigars, I think, throughout our interview. I think I probably vaped, which is very beta male of me. There were a couple of other people there, with a couple of women there. Occasionally, one woman came and brought us coffee. I now know her name was Georgina Nagel, who's also been arrested, who's been reported to be his girlfriend. But I very much got the impression she was a PA at the time, although the more you learn about Tate, probably the two sort of roles are fairly interchangeable. And what was your first impression of him? Well, he's a big guy. I mean, he's very big. He's physically very big. He's tall. He's notably muscly. He wears clothes that show off his muscle. But he's weirdly not physically that intimidating, despite being very Mm. big, which I think he's got this kind of mid-Atlantic accent. I don't know. There's something almost slightly camp about him. I'm sure he could be quite domineering and imposing in conversation. And he does interrupt quite a lot when you talk, but he's also quite an easy person to interrupt back. And he listens when you talk. I got the sense that he enjoys conversation, enjoys combative conversation. What did you talk about? The reason I was there was to talk about his banning from Mm. social media and what was acceptable on social media and what wasn't and why he'd been banned and whether it was fair and all that kind of stuff. So there were two main areas, I suppose, 
I wanted to explore there. The first was just his misogyny, because he's got a huge track record of, I'd say undeniably, but he denied it, we'll come to that. But a, a long history of misogynistic statements on social media. I perfected this in pimp school. When I got my PhD, we had to practice if a girl comes at you, ah, ah you cheater, you cheating. It's bang out the machete, boom in her face, and then grip her up by the neck. But when I spoke to him at the time, because he'd been banned from most social media and a lot of his content had been removed, although it's kind of creeping back, most of this stuff only existed as clips. So I said, well, you said this, and he'd say, well, that was out of context, you've misunderstood, and so on. And that gets a little exhausting after a while, it's repetitive, but he knew all the clips as well as I knew the clips. He couldn't be blindsided about them. And he had a sort of an answer that was not exactly rehearsed, but well-known for everything. So we discussed the various things he'd said. We discussed his his view of the rival roles of men and women, that that a man is, should be strong and dominate and that many women are, are happy with this and that a man should have multiple partners and a woman should not, and many women are happy with that too. Periodically, I'd say that's a very misogynistic thing you just say, and he'd dispute it. His view was basically that I, I was a liberal and led a liberal lifestyle, and he didn't judge that. So it was wrong for me to judge him. And he also said if I did judge him, I was also judging women who were very happy to live in the way he wanted to live, and that made me a misogynist for being sort of condescending towards them. Wow, that's that's quite a convoluted argument. And did you get a sense from your conversations about where his money came from. I asked him directly where his money came from. There was a clip of him, one of many clips of him, where he talks about how he's a trillionaire. People underestimate that I am the world's first trillionaire. I say this and people go, oh, he's not that rich. I am literally the world's first trillionaire, Elon. And I was like, come on, this is nonsense. Of course you're not a trillionaire. And he joked that he'd been joking about Zimbabwean currency. He said he was a Zimbabwean trillionaire. And I said, where does the money come from? And he said, I don't have to tell you that. No rich person would tell a journalist what all their business interests are. And I said, but come on, like roughly, you know, because you might speak to someone and they'd say, but I'm in shipping, I'm in airline, I'm in movies, whatever. What are you into? And he said he owned a lot of property. He said he had some sort of influence and media contracts. He said he had a lot of investments in cryptocurrency. He flatly denied that he was still involved in pornography, although obviously a lot of his early money came mm. from pornography. But he said, no, I haven't been involved in that for years. I would say I got the sense that he was certainly worth millions, but not lots of millions, if you see what I mean. But, I mean, he was in Romania, and obviously a lot of the reason why he'd gone there to build this compound in Romania was that it was a way to create a sort of facsimile of what would it, it look like extreme wealth if it was in Los Angeles, but somewhere a lot cheaper. He also said this thing, actually, just after we'd finished, about he was trying to decide whether or not to go on a trip to Dubai, but he wasn't sure it was worth the airfare which I doubt is something Elon Musk would have said. <laughs> That's a very good point. It's not what uh, a trillionaire worries about necessarily. In your conversation, did you feel like you were able to sort of get under his skin a bit? Occasionally, he's a thoughtful conversationalist. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to navigate conversations. He's like your sort of nightmare internet debater who never stops. There's always the sort of the reply. And he has spent a lot of time defending his views on various podcasts and so on. So he, he treats it, I guess, like fencing. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't clam up. As I said, I can think of a few points where it's very feasible he just flatly lied to me. I think there were maybe three, two or three moments where he he lost his composure, and only slightly, but a bit notably, which I think was when I made him feel foolish. One of the many times we were talking mm. about misogyny, 
because he kept saying, look, I'm, I'm not a misogynist. I've never behaved with a woman in a way that she didn't want me to behave with her. I have no criminal convictions. He said this thing several times, I have no criminal convictions. And I said, come on, is that the bar here that you've got no criminal convictions? He got a bit defensive and flustered on that. And then eventually said, no, it was illustrative. If he'd really been that bad, then eventually the police would have caught up with him by now, which is obviously something worth reflecting on. The time he really lost his temper was when I suggested he was a bad role model for teenage boys. And then he actually started shouting about how masculinity was demonized, teenage boys were demonized, he was the only person sticking up for them, and so on. And he seemed to genuinely believe that. That was the point at which he got properly cross with me, I think. By the end of the interview, what was your impression of him? I mean, he has horrible views. That was reinforced. I was surprised at how clever he was. I mean, I shouldn't have been surprised at how clever he was. He learned to play chess as a child, and he played competitive chess as a child, and he's very good. So I shouldn't be surprised that he was clever, particularly as he's such a fluent talker. But mainly, and I guess this is the important thing to, for me anyway to reflect on now, I thought he was a bullshitter, mm. right? I thought he was a bullshitter about the money, obviously, about this whole kind of I run with gangsters and I'm in fear for my life and that's why we've got all these guns. And I also thought he was a bullshitter about all the sex he had and this harem of women and and and, and what he got away with. I thought, I thought, I mean, I thought he was a nasty guy, but I thought the bulk of the stuff when he online where he boasted about his sex life and money was bullshit, was showing off, was playing a role. And that's the thing I'm thinking obviously a lot about now, wondering whether I got that badly wrong. That's so interesting. There has been a lot of questions asked about whether it was right to interview him at all. And you, know, you sort of said that was one of the considerations before you did it. What mm. do you make of that? Because, you know, a lot of people will say he's dangerous because he already has such a huge platform. And that's how he spreads these toxic ideas. Did you feel uncomfortable about talking to him and giving him a whole new audience? I'm still not 100% certain we got it right, but I just came down on the side of the argument that it was the right thing to do. For, look, for one thing, the audience we were presenting him to was not his audience. It was readers of the Times magazine. And the bulk of the feedback I got after the interview was from parents, and indeed teachers as well, who said, we've known for a while that either our children or our pupils were into this man. We didn't really know a huge amount about him. We're glad to have learned more, which I guess was a, a very, um, is in the end, a very worthwhile reason to have done the interview. I suppose it does raise that bigger question for journalists. And, you know, whether it's Andrew Tate or other figures who we worry are slightly toxic and are spreading terrible ideas, it is now a real battle for, for journalists to work out what the right thing to do is. Do you think it's always better to hold them up to the public and question them? Yes, I think so. I mean, that's the gig. That's what we're for. Look, I'm not going to pretend I'm some sort of fearsome Rottweiler interrogator. You know, I'm, a, I'm an essentially flippant features writer with the odd interest, and I'm, I'm well aware of that. I think if I hadn't interviewed him, if I'd taken a different decision and all this had happened this week, I would be properly ashamed of myself for having swerved a difficult story for the sake of my own sort of peace of mind online. So I've got no regrets in that regard at all. Megan, you began to be interested in Andrew Tate when you saw the effect he was having on teenagers. That probably hasn't died down even with his arrest. Schools, from what we've heard, are now running specific Andrew Tate classes where his views are critically addressed. And people who run 
sex education and relationships classes are dedicating whole slides on PowerPoints and training teachers. And I spoke to someone who said that in every session he's done with teachers, Andrew Tate has come up. And I guess he will continue to do so. And do you think if schools are running classes trying to fight his version of toxic masculinity, I mean, does that work? Or is that more likely to send teenagers back to his viral TikToks? I think talking about it in a measured, critical way that's not blaming young people for liking him and not saying you are bad for liking him is is the only way that we can fix this. I think people fall down these rabbit holes of pickup artists and macho alpha male influencers that we have to talk about this in the real world, even if it is tricky and people are still figuring it out. But I think they have to try and Andrew Tate doesn't exist by himself. He's not an anomaly. He's not like an island. He exists on top of a huge culture underneath him. If we see him as being the only evil in all of this, then we run the risk of ignoring the structure that exists underneath him that allows him to exist in the first place. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, news features writer for The Sunday Times, Megan Agnew, and Times radio presenter and columnist, Hugo Rifkind. You can read more of their work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producers were James Shield and Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.